Good morning, church. Find Romans 12, if you would. If we haven't met, my name is Neil. I'm one of the uh, associate pastors here at Grace this morning. It's going to be my job to kind of lay some of the groundwork where Pastor George is going to be taking us in October. But first, let me say that today is kind of a special day for Angie and I. It is the 21st anniversary of the second time we visited Grace Community Church. Yeah. And what, just a minute, I can explain. You might be wondering, what's so big about the second time you visited church? That is the Sunday that we decided to make Grace our church home. Okay? So if you don't know our story, uh, when after Angie and I got married, I did a year internship at a, at a church in the St. Louis area. And when that was up, we felt compelled to come to Kansas City to finish seminary. And we decided I wasn't going to... Uh, take a church job while I was in seminary. School was going to be my full-time job because in our mind, we were going to be here uh, for maybe two years max. Uh, that was it. We, we still wanted to, but we still wanted to join a family, a church family and, and, and get some community while we were here. But let me tell you that church, that search for a church home was tough. Can anybody relate to having a tough time finding a church home when you move to a new area or something like that? Man, I I can empathize with you. Uh, We searched for nearly three months. I can remember being so discouraged that one Sunday I didn't want to go. I was like, do we have to? Um, but Angie said, yes, we did. So we went, uh, and in, in desperation, I took about 50 church pamphlets that I got at, at the seminary orientation really quick. Young people, a pamphlet is a, a paper form of a website. Um, but this is back in 2001. So that's why one of those pamphlets that caught my eye was though for Grace Community Church in Smithville, Missouri. And somewhere, I'm telling you, I still have that pamphlet. I looked for it all week and couldn't find it, but it is somewhere in a file, uh, buried somewhere. It has this nice young couple on the couple, or on the cover. They didn't go here. George just used some stock image, which means I'm here because of false advertising, but that's okay. And our first Sunday here, or rather at the hospital, the church was celebrating 18 months as a church. And on that day, George was reminding everyone of the purpose and the mission of Grace Community Church, which, by the way, as you just heard him explain, that's what he's going to be doing for the month of October. He's going to be walking us through our five purposes as a church. But on that day, 21 years ago, he distilled it all down into one sermon. And let me tell you, it was a great day to be a visitor because you felt like you got all the information you needed to know about this church. And and on the drive home that day, Angie and I both said something that is seared into my memory. And I'm telling you, this is so odd because we had no intention of being here. But for some reason, this is seared into my memory. On the drive home that day, I said, wouldn't it be cool to grow with that church? And again, that's not my plan. My plan was to finish seminary and get back to St. Louis to watch Albert Pujols hit home runs because he was never, ever going to leave the Cardinals, right? But it turns out Pujols had other plans for his bat, but he's back, 700, yay. And God had other plans for Angie and I, which brings to me what Angie said that Sunday on the way home. She said, that felt like home. Now, to be clear, she wasn't talking about the building. Do you remember our days at the hospital if you were there? 
We were in an abandoned psychiatric ring with no hot water, a leaky roof. Our sanctuary was about the size of our current fellowship hall. It had low ceilings, cinder block walls. We had poles running down the middle uh, of the room. There were like three, at least three different types of chairs. And inexplicably, there was a window AC unit running in a room that didn't have a window. The building is not what made it feel like home. If anything, the building made you feel like you needed a tetanus shot. What made it feel like home was you, your welcoming smiles, your hearts in worship, your attentiveness to during the preaching, the solidarity of a, the solidarity of a family on a mission. That's what won us over. And for two kids in a new city, six hours away from family and friends, we desperately needed a place to call home, which is why on our second week here, we made Grace our home. And 21 years later, it's still home. I'm on staff now. You guys are family. And this family has grown quite a bit in 21 years. We certainly have upgraded our facilities. But I hope and pray that we are still a congregation that makes people feel at home. It shouldn't be a place that you attend. It should be a family that you are a part of. So as before George lays out exactly the what we are supposed to be doing, today I want to remind us of who we are to one another. And I'm going to be using that phrase, one another, a lot. You may, you may know that, that those two words show up often in the New Testament. The specific Greek word I'm referring to appears uh, exactly 100 times. 47 of those times, it's a direct command to us as believers. And don't worry, we're not going to cover all 47. That's because the folks at the Overview Bible Project have looked at those 47 references and noticed that they basically, with a few few exceptions, they basically fall into one of three categories. And those are the things that we're going to be looking at today, those three categories. And if you're new here, we usually preach through a, a book of the Bible verse by verse. That's kind of what we do. For this series, we're going to be looking at many passages. So I'll be jumping around a lot today, but I'll keep coming back to Romans chapter 12. Because that chapter has three one another verses, one from each of the three categories that we're going to look at. Okay, so if you're in Romans 12, that's good. We'll get there eventually. Let me start by looking at these three categories. The first of which is this, to love one another. One third of all the one another commands are uh, are to love one another. Jesus Jesus commanded it in the Gospels. Paul commanded it in his letters, as did Peter, as did John. It's an imperative for us as believers. So it's important to actually know what it means. We are pretty uh, casual with the word love in our culture, right? The same person who might say, I love my spouse, may five minutes later say, I love pizza. And, and we know culturally that that person's not talking about the same level of devotion. We get that. We get what they mean. But let me share a phrase where I think confusion has set in. And that phrase is this, I love my church. If you were to say that, what exactly would you mean? Like, put the the word love on hold for a second. We'll get back to that. What do you mean by church? Are you referring to the building? Probably not. You may be referring to the church's worship service or the music or the preaching or the ministries that it offers. And it's not bad to enjoy those things. We hope that you do. But in the Bible, the word church is not defined as a building or a program. It's defined as people. That's why my first three words to you on Sundays are good morning church. I'm not greeting the building. I'm greeting you. 
It's my intentional weekly reminder to you that you are the church. In fact, it's the first lesson that we teach in our version of children's church. We used to call that class transitions. We are relaunching it next week as we worship. And if you're new, we value having kids in worship with us. We think it's vitally important for their spiritual development and their spiritual longevity. But for their kindergarten and first grade year, we offer them a class during the sermon portion of this service, the 9 a.m. worship service, to help them learn the ins and outs of worship. Like what is, uh, um, what is worship? What is prayer? What is the Bible? What is a church? Spoiler alert for next week, the church is people. So when we say, I love my church, we should be speaking of our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who we worship with, who we learn with, who we serve with. That's where our affections should lie. And look, at a church this size, uh, it's, it's impossible to be deep friends with everyone, although Jeff Maxwell is trying. There you go. But in this body, you should be able to find a group of people that you can share your life with in a meaningful way. People that will help you grow in the likeness of Christ. But let's focus on the most important word in that phrase, love. What does it mean to love? You've probably heard that the Greeks used four different words for for love, uh, four different types of love. They had one word for romantic love, one word for family love, one word for friendship or brotherly love. And then they also had one word for the ultimate, sacrificial, unconditional type of love. Which of those four do you think we are called to love one another with? Let me tell you, you don't need the original Greek manuscripts to figure it out. Just read the context clues. Here's a couple verses. John 13, 34. Jesus says, as I have loved you, so you must also love one another. And then 1 John 4, 11 echoes that. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. What type of love did the Father and the Son express to us? It's the ultimate. It's the unconditional. It's the sacrificial type of love. The Father gave his one and only Son for us. Jesus laid down his life so that we would be made right with God. Their love knows no bounds. Let me ask you, is that anything like the love that you have for your fellow believers in Christ? How does it manifest? God's love manifests us. How does yours manifest? Do you pray for one another, as is commanded in James 5.16? Do you encourage one another, as we are instructed in 1 Thessalonians 5.11? Do you bear one another's burdens, as Galatians 6.2 demands? All of those are ways in which we should be devoted to one another in love. Which each of these three categories, I'm going to share some scriptural insights in how you can obey these commands. And the first insight is to, in how to successfully love one another is to be devoted to one another in love. If you're in Romans 12, look down starting at verse 9. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourself. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Verse 13, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Let's pause there. 
One of the ways that you can measure your devotion to other believers is to examine your empathy for them. Do you rejoice when they rejoice? Do you mourn when they mourn? When good news happens to your fellow believers in Christ, are you elated for them and with them? Or does the news just kind of roll by you? And when bad news comes their way, does it cut you like it cuts them? Because it should. Paul says, be devoted to one another in love. In the Greek, the word devoted in Romans chapter 12 It's referring to having a tender and compassionate heart for one another. As we sang this morning, everyone needs compassion. You were called to give it to them. And I know that level of care is usually reserved for our close family members. It seems unnatural to feel that way about others. That's why Paul says this is going to take a devoted effort on your part. And that's necessary because guess what? We are family. Right? We are sons and daughters of the Most High. We were redeemed by the blood of Christ with whom we are now a co-heir. If you are in Christ, you are my brother. You are my sister. We are family and I am called to love you. And there is power in that love. And we see that in the second scriptural insight to loving one another, which is be rooted and established in love. That comes from what George read earlier, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 17. I'm going to read that again. He says, I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. So being rooted in love bears the fruit of loving one another. And Paul says there is power in that. Paul says that it helps us better understand God's love for us, which fills us. And then in verse uh, uh, 21 that drives us to magnify and glorify Christ. Paul ends that, that part portion with saying, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Church, loving one another is good for the one you love. It's good for your own soul and it glorifies Jesus. So I implore you, brothers and sisters in Christ, love just as Christ has loved you one another. But I'm also going to call you to unity, to live in unity with one another, because that's that's the second category uh, of the one another verses. There are just as many one of uh, many one. There are just as many verses that call us to be unified with one another as there are verses that command us to love one another. It's almost as if fallen human beings are drawn towards selfishness and conflict. Who knew? And let me tell you, as I was reading over these one another verses that deal with unity, I couldn't help but read them uh, with the tone of a parent getting onto their kids for bickering with one another. For example, in, in John 6.43, Jesus tells his disciple, disciples to not grumble with one another. Mark 9.50, he calls them to be at peace with one another. And I don't know what was going on in the Galatian churches. But Paul drops some serious, pretty, uh, pretty serious imagery when he tells them in Galatians 5.15 to stop biting and devouring one another. Paul sounds like he's dealing with toddlers. But he wasn't. He was dealing with adults who, like us, need to be reminded of the Lord's calling and desire for us to be unified. In his prayer in John 17, Jesus talks about unity among his followers. He prays in, in verses 21 through 23. 
that all of them may be one, just as he and the Father are one, so that, as it says in verse 23, the world, that, the world may believe that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Guys, our unity is a reflection of the unity that exists between the Father and Jesus. The fact that people from all walks of life, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, can be unified in the person of Christ is a testimony to the world that he is the Son of God who offers love and redemption by his blood. And when we fail to live in that unity with one another, we fail to present the gospel accurately. That's why in our membership covenant at Grace, we ask you to commit to protecting the unity of your church. And we don't do that for our church's reputation, but for for Christ's reputation. So how can you work on unity? Let me give you a couple of suggestions from the one another verses. First, learn to forgive one another. Paul writes in Colossians 3.13, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So we see the same language as from the command to love one another. As the Lord forgave you. Whatever grievance you have against your brother or sister, it pales in comparison to the list of grievances that you've stacked up against the Holy God. And yet he has forgiven you. Look at me. I'm not saying that forgiveness is going to be easy. For some of you, it's going to uh, seem like you're paying a high price. But I want to remind you that your forgiveness was not cheap. Your forgiveness cost Jesus his life, cost God his holy son. Be prepared to forgive. And I want to make sure that I'm clear on this too. Forgiving one another does not mean endangering yourself physically or emotionally by placing yourself back into a relationship where there is abuse or unrepentant sin. Forgiveness and boundaries can, and in some cases, absolutely should coexist. Are you with me? But many of your grievances with one another, with fellow believers, let's just be honest, they're they're really over petty issues that we should let go of for the sake of the gospel. Learn to forgive one another for the sake of unity. Then another scriptural insight that helps us being in unity is to live in harmony with one another. That's the command from Romans, back in Romans 12, verse 16, where we left off. Live in harmony with one another. In verse 18, a couple of verses later, he says, if it's possible, to, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And that word peace in verse 18 could also be translated as harmony. So let's talk about harmony for a minute. What, what is it? We use it to describe like the serene or peaceful existence. It's unity. But let me tell you what it's not. It's not uniformity. Think of harmony in the musical sense. Different notes being played in unison to create something beautiful. That's the unity that we're looking for. We don't have to be the same. God has created and gifted us differently to make sure that the church body as a whole can maximize its potential to glorify his son. We shouldn't expect uniformity. We should expect variety. And we saw a great picture of this last week at Nehemiah Fest, as, as, as David showed you, right? Christians of all stripes and worship styles came together to unite under the banner of Christ. In him we are one. We need not be divided. In Paul's day, there was hostility between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. And in Ephesians 2, 15 through 19, he explains the absurdity of that hostility. 
in light of what uh, Jesus has done, how he has made a way of peace through his death. He writes in verse 15, Jesus' purpose was to create himself one new humanity out of two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Verse 18, for through him we have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. You know what he's saying? He's saying you all are family. So put aside your petty differences and be unified. Christ died to unite us with the Father. That should also be enough to unite us with one another. Of course, guys, at some point there are going to be dividing lines. I get that. If we are dealing with false doctrine, if we're dealing with unrepentant sin, we don't turn a blind eye to that for the sake of unity. No, for the sake of the gospel, we confront it as Jesus commands, as Paul commands, as others instruct us in God's word. Don't misunderstand me. But if we are allowing personal preferences or secondary issues to divide us, then we are disobeying God's call to have unity with one another. And the result of that is a bad harmony that no one wants to listen to. Listen, disunity not only distracts us from our mission, but it also sours a watching world on the message of hope that we offer. So I implore you, to live in unity with one another. But that's not all. So there's still this third category of one another verses. And that is to live in humility with one another. So this category is not as prevalent as the love one another or the live in unity with one another. But it still comprises of about 15% of all the one another verses we have in the New Testament. Like here's some examples. Uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5.5 5, to clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Paul tells us in Philippians 2.3 to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. But with humility consider one another as more important than yourselves. Humility is a prerequisite for being a Christian. Right? We must all humble ourselves before a holy God and admit that we are unable to save ourselves. Our righteous acts that we have, they're nothing but filthy rags compared to his holiness. We therefore must plead for mercy, which God graciously extends to us through Christ. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that once we are a Christian, that we don't really have the freedom to elevate ourselves above our fellow sinners. We're all on equal footing in that regard. The Greek word for that type of humility that Paul tells us to clothe ourselves with uh, is a lowliness of mind. Uh, Charles Spurgeon would, would call this having a right-sized estimate of ourselves. It goes along with what Paul's instructions are back in Romans 12. In, in verse 3, he writes, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Let me give you a couple of uh, scriptural insights on how, that, how to do that. First, I would say, as Paul instructs in Romans 12.10, Honor one another above yourself. That word honor means to ascribe value and worth. Everyone has value and worth as an image bearer of God. 
regardless of who they are, what they believe. So we should treat everyone with respect. But often we will only allow ourselves to respect someone as much as they respect us. And Paul says that shouldn't be the mark of a Christian. We should treat others better than we treat ourselves, especially when we are talking about our fellow co-heirs with Jesus, our Christian family. There's a phrase that become that has become popular over the past few years. That phrase is treat yourself. You guys know that phrase? Treat yourself. It means to like pamper yourself by purchasing something that you want, even though it's not really necessary. Treat yourself. What if we, what if we flipped treat yourself and said treat one another? How might you be able to honor someone in this body in a way that shows that you are choosing to value them above yourself? But the most important way to stay humble is to put on the mind of Christ. That's your last insight. Let me just say this. Putting on the mind of Christ is also going to help you love one another. It's also going to help you live in humility with one another. But consider what Paul writes about Jesus being the model for our humility in Ephesians 2, 5 through 8. He says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus' humility cannot be outmatched, right? He is of the highest of worth. Yet he brought himself down to the lowest of worth. The king and creator of the universe became a servant and died a criminal's death. And that death was for our crimes against a holy God. If you're here today and you are apart from Christ, despite what you believe about yourself, you are condemned because of your sin. But thankfully, Your creator sent his son to bear that condemnation upon himself so that all who trust in him can be forgiven and made a part of the family of God. So I implore you to become a part of his family today by trusting in his son's death on behalf of your sins and then enjoy the fellowship of your new uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. But if you're already in that family, then I would just say make sure that you are using Jesus as your model as you strive to live in humility with one another. I want to end as we began by focusing on that phrase, I love my church. First off, I truly hope that's as true for you as it is for me. I love the people of Grace Community Church. I'm so grateful that God led us here and kept us here. To quote my wife, this is home. And to answer my younger self's question, it has indeed been cool to grow with this church. And if you're new to Grace, I invite you to come back next week and hear more about our mission as a church. Perhaps it will inspire you as it inspired me to make Grace your home. But there's still one word in the phrase, I love my church, that we need to talk about, and it's the word, my. Guys, technically, this is not my church. This is not your church. This is not our church. 
Technically, it's his church. This church belongs to Jesus. Acts 20.28 says, The church was bought with Christ's blood. We belong to him. Which is why as his church, we should be following his commands. And I've shown you three categories of those commands today. Commands that when obeyed, they magnify our Savior. So Grace Community Church, love one another as Christ has loved you. Live in unity with one another so that the world might believe in Christ's love for them. And live in humility with one another, modeling the humility of our Savior. And may this all be for Jesus, who most definitely loves his church. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you for your church. Thank you, Father, for knitting this group of people together here and now. I pray that we would bring honor and glory to your name in this community. Help us to realize that we cannot accomplish that on our own. By your design, we need your spirit and we need one another. I pray that we would seek out community that helps us grow in the likeness of your son. And I pray that we would learn to love one another in the manner that you love us in service, in action. Give us tender hearts for one another so that we would be devoted to one another in love. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would keep us in a spirit of unity with one another. Let not the the petty differences distract us from reflecting the love of God to a watching world. Give us a humility with one another as we seek to honor one another above ourselves. And through all of this, give us the mindset of Christ who chose sacrifice over self. To him be glory in the church and throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.